Matthew's record of the all of that discourse has been completed. Again, it's the second longest of those discourses that are presented by the Lord recorded in the Gospel records. And we spent a great deal of time over chapter 24 and chapter 25 because it is so relevant to us as believers, but more specific to the people of God, the Jews, the Hebrew nation. So we covered those things in great depth, and I hope that it is clear to you as far as the timing of things are concerned, that Jesus was speaking of things still future, but yet very near as well. The destruction of the temple would have occurred in the lifetime of several of them. Not all of them. Some of them would have passed away by this time of the Roman uh, conquering of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but several of them were alive. And they realized when that took place that it was a fulfillment of what Jesus had spoken. But yet, what Jesus had also said could not be applied to that particular period of time. And it must be assumed and understood by us who are still alive here in this present hour that the things that Jesus spoke of that were not yet fulfilled in 70 A.D. must be yet to be fulfilled. And that is what we presented to you, and it is what we continue to emphasize that we're getting close to those days, I believe, when those things will indeed be fulfilled. But in chapter 26... He's finished with his discourse and he now turns his attention to specific details about something very near. It's about to happen within days. And he wants his people to be prepared for the inevitability of these things that he's going to be speaking of in this portion of Scripture that Matthew records for us. Now we need to also understand that Matthew, being a Jew, wrote primarily not in chronological order necessarily, but in thematic order. In other words, there were certain themes that he wanted to present in his presentation of the truths that he wanted the Jewish people, who were the original readers of this document that we know of as the Gospel of Matthew. So he presents certain things, not in chronological order, but in an order that emphasizes a certain theme. You'll see that in a few moments when we tie what Matthew says together with what John also says about this series of events. But we're going to first begin in Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be reading from verse 1, where Matthew says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is a Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, he had already spoken, recorded by Matthew, at least three previous occasions where he mentioned his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You notice in this portion that we've just read, he does not mention the resurrection. The focus is on his death. The focus is on his being taken and put to death. And that's the purpose that Jesus has in proclaiming this particular word to his disciples to prepare them for those very near things that are about to occur. The Passover was a feast that they yearly celebrated. It was one of the three feasts of the seven feasts that were given by Moses in the Levitical law, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. 
You can see all of the seven feasts listed there. And by the way, men who have been coming to our men's breakfast and Bible study um, once a month have been going through each of the seven feasts. We've only completed four of them. There are three others that we will be looking at as the Lord leads uh, in the days ahead. But the very first of those feasts is the Feast of Passover. And you remember from the book of Exodus that the Passover was a very special occasion for the people of God. The nation of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And God delivered them with a mighty hand out of the nation of Egypt after having performed nine miraculous things that caused great destruction in the land. This tenth plague had come upon the nation of Israel. But they would be protected if they sacrificed a lamb, a lamb that they would have taken into their homes on the tenth day of the month, of the first month of their calendar year, or their religious calendar year, I should say. It corresponds to sometime between March and early April in our Gregorian calendar. It was known as Abib, or later known as Nisan, the month in which the sacrifice was to be brought into their homes on the tenth day of that month. And then on the fourteenth day of the month, they were to sacrifice that lamb. Imagine how difficult that must have been, especially with families with children, when you would take a lamb that they had had in their houses, the kids were playing with that lamb, and the lamb was bringing great joy to them, and then the father has to come and take the lamb and say, it's time to sacrifice this lamb. They would draw the blood, pour it into a vessel, and on the doorposts outside of every home, each Israeli home would take a branch of hyssop, put it into that blood, and smack on the doorpost, on the lintel, on the top, and two sides, the blood of the lamb. And you can visualize, I hope, that this represents the cross of Christ on the two sides and on the top where Jesus wore the crown, blood pouring down from his head, from his wounds and his hands, blood pouring down on each side. It represented the cross of Christ. There are so many things that we see in the Old Testament Scriptures that point to Christ, and this was one of the greatest things that did indeed foreshadow that which what God had planned from the beginning of time, from the foundations of the world, that the sacrifice that that sacrifice represented would ultimately be done in God's perfect time and in the appropriate time of year and on the appropriate day and even at the appropriate hour, Jesus fulfilled that which was demonstrated every single year that they worshipped God by obeying His command to kill the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and pour the blood as He was instructing them in that very first time that they were able then to get out of Egypt. They were delivered from that which was keeping them in bondage. A powerful demonstration of the work that God intended to do for all nations for all peoples, not just the Jews, including you and I, the sacrificial lamb would be slain. And it is of great importance that you understand Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples at least two and perhaps three previous times. This time was different. 
This time was a time of fulfillment. And so Jesus, knowing the time and knowing what needed to be done, made absolutely certain that everything that was pointed to his sacrifice would be fulfilled exactly at the right moment of time and in exactly the right way. That's what I want us to put together today as we look together in this portion of Scripture as well as a few other things that we're going to throw in besides. But this is important. This is fulfillment. If Jesus had died on any other day than the day that He had died, it would not be the same. If He had mistaken the perfect will of the Father in this one thing, then He could not be known as our Savior. You know that after two days is a Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, He said. Two days. You need to understand also the way that the Jewish people count their days. It's significant because there's some degree of uncertainty as to when this actually did take place. So I'm going to try as best as I'm able, and I'm I'm not the only opinion on this, but I think it's a, a worthwhile observation. We know that the Jewish people began their day at evening, usually around 6 p.m. The day began. The afternoon and morning preceding that time were the previous day, but at evening it became a new day, and that new day lasted until the evening of the following day. Our day begins technically at midnight and ends at midnight. So there's a difference in how we observe days and nights. So when Jesus said that Passover will be in two days, it implies that the Passover celebration should occur on what was known as the twelfth day of Nisan, or the twelfth day of Abib. Same month, but different uh, uh, ways of pronouncing and, and referring to the same period of time. You know that after two days, we'll see later on that he must have given this instruction in the evening. And it's very likely that he spoke this on Tuesday evening of the week. Remember, he came into Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. He went out of Jerusalem that night and came back the next day and cursed the fig tree. He went out of Jerusalem then, and we now have a difficulty in terms of how do we count the number of days between that last encounter in Jerusalem that he had with the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and those, those who were against him, and his actual crucifixion. Most of the church, historically, has counted the day of his crucifixion as Friday. Good Friday, we call it. And that he went with his disciples on Thursday night into the Garden of Gethsemane and was taken prisoner by the authorities on that Thursday evening or night. That's very possible, but there are some difficulties with that. As I look at the gospel records, and 
and this is done by many people, and there are still very several opinions, but it looks to me as though it was most likely that Jesus, because he said two days before the Passover, that it must have been either just before or just after the evening that began the next day. So it could be Thursday that he's referring to with regard to the Passover feast. It also could be Wednesday. If he spoke that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday, then two days would be the evening of Wednesday night, which would put his crucifixion on Thursday. That's a very real possibility. I kind of lean toward that. Not that I want to say that all the rest of the church world is wrong. I'm just saying that this is an opinion that many do have, and it is very, very sound. It fits into the construct that we can put together with regard to what all the gospel records do declare. There's another thing that we need to understand, that the Feast of First Fruits, which was a week-long feast, began on the day of Passover and extended for seven days. Sometimes they make reference to first fruits, and sometimes they make reference to Passover, and it can be confusing. What are we talking about? What day are we dealing with? So again, it just adds to the uncertainty. I only bring this out because, you know, it, it is cause for a lot of, well, disagreement. I wanted to make a big deal out of this, but I do want you to understand that that whenever somebody says, he didn't die on Friday, he died on Thursday, and is really adamant about it, that probably isn't a very good approach. I'm not trying to be adamant about it. I'm just trying to give you the details that I see relating to this particular series of events. One last thing before we move on is that Matthew is going to say something with regard to a meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And it seems to be, because Matthew puts it in this place, that it is immediately following his having said what he said with regard to the the Passover and his death. John, on the other hand, is going to say specifically that meal that Matthew will be speaking of next actually happened six days before Passover. That would put it on a Saturday, which gives rise to the understanding that perhaps it really was that he died on Thursday instead of Friday. So this just food for thought as we move forward. But Jesus here is saying, you know this thing that I've just spoken. They had been made aware. Again, three previous occasions Jesus talked about these things. Now he's saying the time is at hand. This is the hour. Jesus said all through his ministry, days in Galilee and in Judea, my time has not yet come. Now he's saying, in two days, my time is about to be manifest. Think about that. Jesus knew exactly what to do, when to do it, and why it must be done so. It's in fulfillment of that Passover feast. So one of the most remarkable things about the seven feasts of Israel that we have been observing in our men's study, as I earlier mentioned, that each of the feasts appears to have been 
fulfilled in some way by Jesus or by His Holy Spirit that He would send. On the day that they were accomplished in the Hebrew calendar year, that's so with this particular feast. And I hope that you see that as we move forward. He says in verse 3, Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, listen carefully, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They wanted him dead. But they did not want to do it during the feast of Pentecost, or rather Passover, because it would be a terrible situation that would develop as a result of that. The people that followed Jesus would be up in arms against the religious leaders of the day. So they didn't want that feast to be interrupted with the murder of another great rabbi the people respected. So they wanted to do it privately. And they certainly did not want it to be done at the feast. The other reason would be because they were tied to Rome. They didn't want to offend Rome by having an uprising take place. The Roman government would have come down very severely on them as well as the people. They were fearful of their lives, so they chose not to bring that possibility to the forefront. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. Religious leaders wanting to murder an innocent man. Is that really possible? People who named God as their God, who worshipped God, who said, Thou shalt not murder, they are planning to murder. They're planning to do something that was totally against the will of God. They had, in their opinion, no other choice. They couldn't persuade the people any other way. They tried. Remember, they tried to convince the people that this was not the Messiah. This is not a worthwhile person to follow. He's a liar. He's the son of Belial. They accused him of being an evil man. And they tried desperately to find some fault in him. They could not do it. And that effort to find fault in him lasted for three days while he was there in their midst. There was nothing that they could do because he was a perfect Lamb of God. He was without blemish. They tried to expose some spot or wrinkle, some blemish that would cause the people to turn away from following him. They couldn't do it. That's why they're resorting to this. They have no other alternative. They hated him with such a hatred that they wanted to destroy him. But that's God's plan. That's exactly as God had intended. It needed to be so. As difficult as it is to understand why God would make that to be the way that things took place, it is basically only that way through which Christ could have accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. But take again notice of the fact that they didn't want to do it on the feast day. They wanted to do it later, after all the multitudes had already gone home. Now, in Jerusalem on that 
particular feast day because it was one of the three feast days that I had mentioned. They have to come to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. That day, that week of first fruits, the people were all around the city, in the city. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were gathered together from all over the regions around them to worship God on that day. There are two other feasts where the people were required to come to Jerusalem. One is the Feast of Pentecost in the summer, and the other is the Feast of, first, uh, feast of Tabernacles in the fall. But this particular feast was a feast where they would remember the salvation of God, setting them free. This feast of all the feasts stands uniquely apart from the rest of the feasts because of the import of what is being done. And when Jesus had said those words that we introduced this morning to you in the reading of chapter 26, verse 2, that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified in this two days, they didn't all get that. But the next portion of Scripture that we're going to read shines a bright light for us. Take a look with me at verse 6 of this great passage that Matthew records. He says, When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. The setting is the home of Simon the leper. Interesting that they all, four Gospels, mention this particular event. John gives us a great more detail than the others do, but Simon the leper, who was he? Well, obviously, they wouldn't be meeting his, in his house if he were still a leper. So implied in this context that we're given here is that he was a leper and that Jesus probably healed him. Although we're not told that specifically, it's a good conclusion for us to make. He was gathered together in Simon the leper's home. We don't know the relationship that Simon the leper had with other believers. But he was living in Bethany and he had a home there and he apparently was fairly wealthy. And this woman who is not introduced by name by Matthew, comes along and pours a very expensive ointment upon Jesus' head. Don't you wish you knew more about who that woman was? You can find that out if you turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12, which is what I'd like you to do. John, chapter 12 Not only do we find out who this woman is, but we also find out who spoke the words that we just read. John records for us in chapter 12, verse 1, Then, six days before the Passover, now you see, that's what John records that the other gospel accounts don't give us, a specific time frame. This happened on the Saturday before his crucifixion, six days before. If it happened in the evening of that day, then it's very likely that that particular event 
was counted from that point until Thursday. If it happened before the evening of that day began, then you can count from that day until Wednesday. Take your pick. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, that's where they lived, where Lazarus, who was, had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, was there with them. There they made him a feast, a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. You're familiar with Martha, you're familiar with Lazarus. If you've read John's Gospel, he gives them a great deal of space in his record. Martha and Lazarus and Mary were siblings. We're not told for certain whether Simon was a father of those siblings or just another wealthy person from Bethany. Some people draw that conclusion that he was indeed their father, but you can't really be certain of that. But they are in Simon the leper's home, and Lazarus is there, and Martha, and we'll see that Mary also was there. Now, John, again, tells us a lot of information about those three individuals. In one scene, we find Mary sitting at Jesus' feet as he's teaching those who are gathered into their home. Martha is working in the kitchen, and she's really very upset at her sister Mary because Mary wasn't helping her until she finally says to Jesus, Lord, tell Mary to help me out. It's not fair. She's not helping. Shame on her. Jesus' response shocked her and probably shocked the rest of the people who were there. Mary is doing a better part, Jesus said. Don't fret about anything, Jesus tells Martha. You're doing your part, and you're doing it well. Mary's doing her part, and she's doing it well. Later on, in John's Gospel again, in chapter 11, we find that Jesus is informed that Lazarus is sick. Very dear friend, they all are of Jesus. Mary and Martha are hoping that Jesus will arrive in time to save Lazarus and heal him, as he had done so many other times for so many other people before. However, Jesus delays his arrival intentionally. Lazarus dies of whatever his infirmity was. They put him into a grave, and for four days he's lying in that tomb. That's when Jesus finally arrives. Martha comes and says, Lord, if only you had come earlier, my brother would still be alive today. And this wonderful thing that Jesus now then presents to this wonderful saint that loved him so and expected so much of him. I am the resurrection and life, he says. Do you believe this? Martha's response is, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Lord, the one who is coming, and you will reign. And there will be a resurrection of the dead. She believed all of that. But Jesus said, Martha, he who believes in me, though he lives, or though he dies, yet will he live. You see, what Jesus was saying is, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, I have power over death. And when he had said that, he tells the people gathered around the grave of Lazarus, remove the stone from in front of the grave. Martha's response, but Lord, by now he stinketh. 
in the King James. But now he's already rotting. His body is decaying. Why are you asking him to do so? You know the story. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And a man who had been dead four days and by that time would have been decomposing came forth in grave clothes, not very easily walking out through that tomb opening. And when they saw it, they believed in His power to even do this great miracle. Lazarus now was with them at the table at this feast. His sisters, Martha and Mary, are there. His disciples are with him. Again, going back to what John continues to say in verse 3, then Mary, now we see who it is that Matthew doesn't particularly identify, excuse me, but John does. It is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, identifies particularly what that oil was. Spikenard was a very costly oil that came from a plant in India. Their possession of that spikenard implies that they were very wealthy indeed. Some have uh, calculated whether it's true or not, but the value of that flask of spikenard was something of the order of a year's wage in that day. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, the other accounts tell us that he poured it on his head. He did, she did both. But John just gives that detail. And it is kind of interesting that Luke also talks about a situation in which a woman came into a meeting place where Jesus had gathered with the disciples and she fell at Jesus' feet and she wiped her hair with her tears that had fallen. And that woman was a prostitute. This is not the same occasion. Luke does not mention the anointing. Luke does not mention the fact that it was Mary. Luke was telling about an occasion that occurred in Galilee, not in Bethany. So in that particular presentation of Luke in his gospel record, it seems very likely that this was not the same as this occasion that is being described here by John and by Matthew, and also that Mark records very, very specifically as well. But take note again. She takes this costly spikenard, and she pours it on his feet. Matthew says on his head. But in both cases, the result is the same. Now we find out, not only is it Mary that did this, but we find out who it is that spoke out against it. Because John tells us in verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He was concerned about the money that was lost in this great, really very, very untimely and wrong thing for her to have done, in his opinion. Why was that his opinion? Well, there's a couple of reasons, perhaps. One of them is given here. Verse 6 says, 
Then he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put into it. John is setting this example for us, this little bit of a sidebar, if you will, of the attitude and the character of Judas Iscariot. He was given the uh, privilege and the authority to carry their money box wherever they went. He was their treasurer. Take note of this, Mr. Treasurer. He was deceiving. He was taking money from that box and probably storing it away somewhere for another day. You may remember that Jesus, after he had chosen the twelve, had said to his disciples, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Don't you know that Jesus was very much aware of who it was that would betray him? Don't you know that it was deliberate that he'd chosen Judah, Judas among those who were with him? Do you find it at least interesting to know that Judas was among those who were sent two by two, who's seen miracles that Jesus performed and also was used by the Lord to perform miracles as well? Don't you wonder why this man rebelled against the Lord at such a time as this? The answer is, God arranged it. It was God's perfect will. Jesus was being attentive to every word that the Father had spoken to him. Remember, Jesus had said, I can do nothing except the Father tell me. And even the appointment of those specific men had its purpose. And the appointing of this one specific man, Judas Iscariot, had a purpose. It wasn't at all a surprise to Jesus that Judas would speak out against such a thing. And that's why John continues to say what he says in verse 7, but Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but me you do not always have. So these stories that John and Matthew have related, you put them together and you get a good deal of information from the both of them with regard to this particular event that had taken place. Again, going back to where we started, we have Jesus announcing that he's going to be killed in two days. We have then, following that announcement, the mention of the men who are arranging for that to take place. We have, following that particular account, a beautiful illustration of one who worships the Lord God with all her heart and wants to be a blessing to her Savior and recognizes what he had just said is a very, very serious thing that needed to be taken into consideration. And when she heard those words that he was going to die, the first thing that must have come into her mind is that he needs to be anointed. It was the Jewish custom. He needs to be anointed with very precious oil, which she did have. And so she took that moment, recognizing the importance of what Jesus had just said, and proceeded to anoint him for his burial. 
she was probably one of the only few people in that room that got it. There's no indication that any others of them did. Now remember, Judas is the one, according to John, who said those things. That ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. But he wasn't alone in that accusation. Go back to Matthew's Gospel and realize that they, meaning more than one, were involved in that simple response, perhaps sinful response. Take note again. When his disciples saw it, plural, verse 8, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? So it seems, according to Matthew, that they all were in agreement. That was a waste of great wealth that could have been helping the poor instead of doing this such a terrible, insignificant to them thing that she had done. But Jesus answers. Verse 10 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26 says, But when Jesus was aware of it, He said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. That's what John had said. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my head, she did it for my burial. And take note of what Jesus now says after this. Verse 13 says, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for her or to her. That is such a wonderful statement that the Lord is making with regard to Mary's commitment, Mary's love, Mary's willingness to give up everything. When we sing the words, I surrender all, does our heart match what her heart was, was expressing in this great act of love? I hope it does. She surrendered all. It's like the widow, very poor widow, coming into the temple and presenting in the temple her life's wages. All she had, two little tiny mites. Coins were basically worth less than a penny. And she put them into their offering. It was her offering, and it was all that she had. And all the other great wealthy people who were gathered around, giving so much of what they had into the treasury, did nothing compared to what that poor widow did. And it's also likely that Jesus felt that way about Mary. The psalm that was read this morning is a particularly important psalm. It starts out with the words, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me swiftly. David is writing these, but he's writing these prophetically. And I submit to you that Jesus would have prayed that same prayer. Answer me when I call. Answer me speedily. He says, for my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat bread. 
Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. David was lamenting the fact that all his enemies were surrounding him. David was very much a picture of Jesus Christ in that psalm. And again, as Andrew pointed out, that psalm reminds us that these things will be written for the generation to come. That's you and I. A people that are to be created, that they may praise the Lord. These things are indeed written. So it is here with regard to Mary's wonderful, wonderful outpouring of her great love for the Lord. Jesus again says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Even here today in this room as we've read these words, this is fulfillment of what Jesus had said. That memorial continues in this present hour. She is a woman who stands among all women as one who loved the Lord Jesus with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And she will be forever recognized as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. She gave it all. And her reward is indeed great. Consider that. My prayer is that I might be even in a small way equally as honored as she is. Last, we want to look at another. Remember, it was Judas, John tells us, who raised the question, Why did she do this? It could have been used to help the poor. And in this following passage, we see what is most likely the result of Judas's response to what Mary has done. It says in verse 14 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Luke tells us, Satan entered into him. John will say the same thing, but at a later time. The bottom line is, he was influenced by Satan and driven to do evil things because he allowed the evil one to enter in and totally ruin him for the sake of 30 pieces of silver. Compared to the ointment, it was of little value. But he was hungry for money. It drove him, apparently, to this. And other things as well. Perhaps he was very frustrated that Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem and immediately set up his kingdom. He had been expecting that he and the other disciples who had followed him would be placed into some level of authority. That had all fallen apart when he said, 
when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified in two days. Judas could not accept that truth that Jesus had been speaking. He couldn't look beyond that. It ruined his plans. So that's possibly why he did what he did. And there are people who maybe have other explanations, and I don't want to get into the inner minding, mind work of, of, of a man who was filled with Satan, but I do know this. He went ahead with it. And it's very significant that he goes to the chief priests and he negotiates with them, I'll give you him at an appointed time if you give me some reward. What is it? They reasoned with him. They said, oh, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Why is that significant? Because Zechariah, in chapter 11, the Old Testament prophet, spoke of that very same amount. That Jesus would be indeed betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Everything happening in those hours that we're looking at happened at exactly the right time in exactly the right fashion, by exactly the right group of individuals who were involved in this whole series of events. Jesus didn't miss anything. So now, we have to deal with how is Jesus going to work it out? How is He going to make it so that He does indeed get crucified on the day of Passover, at the hour that the lamb is to be slaughtered according to the Mosaic law. Well, Jesus doesn't want Judas to know any details that he's about to let others know. So he tells them, two of them in particular, we're told in another gospel. It says in verse 17, Now on the day, the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, this is the 14th, of Nisan. This is the day that is to be the day of the sacrifice. Probably done either before 6 p.m. or after 6 p.m. We're not told. And because of that, we don't really know the exact dating of everything. But it is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Passover. Again, the Jewish requirement was that they would slay the lamb on that first day, they would have the Feast of Passover and they would also call that particular day the beginning of the Feast of Passover that would last for seven days. Take note of the fact that Paul, the Apostle, refers to Jesus Christ as our Passover. And he also refers to Jesus Christ as the first fruits in fulfillment of those two particular events that began and occurred on the very same day, the 14th day of Nisan. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day of Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? They had done this on more than one occasion previous to this particular occasion. They would prepare the Passover, everything would be set, and they would all come together at the appointed time and they would enjoy this wonderful feast of celebration of the setting free of the people of Israel on that particular day. He tells them in verse 18, Go into the city, 
to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now we're told in the other Gospels, Judas was not one of those that he spoke this to. He gave that instruction and said that you're going to go into the city and you'll find a man who you will address in this fashion. Think about the details that he's doing here as he makes this statement. The teacher says, my time is at hand. He doesn't have to tell his disciples, tell him Jesus said this. The teacher says, this man that they would come into contact with in the city of Jerusalem that was bustling with hundreds of thousands of people, they'd find this one particular individual and he would know what to do when he hears the words from the disciples' lips, the teacher says. Now, there are those who don't think of this as a miraculous event. I'm sorry, but I think that everything Jesus does is miraculous. And I hope that you understand that this does not happen every day. This is something that I believe is very, very miraculous indeed. The man complies. They will indeed observe the Passover at this particular place. So the disciples, it tells us in verse 19, did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. So that's why I think that perhaps he gave the instruction to prepare for the Passover was prior to 6 p.m. When evening had come on that first day, now that is an evening that began at that moment in time that concluded in the following afternoon. And we see that Jesus is here now gathering with his disciples. And it says in verse 21, Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Again, this shocked them beyond unbelievable sense of compassion for their Lord, but concern for their Lord. How could this be? One of us will betray you? It says in verse 22, they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each one of them began to say, Lord, is it, is it I? Did, am I the one? Did, did, do you mean that I might do this? How could that be, Lord? Can you see the passion in their voices? Is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Jesus actually identified the individual. Now, keep in mind, they gathered around a table that is U-shaped, not a table that is like the tables we use, but more down at floor level, where they would recline at table, they would be laying on their sides with their elbow near the table, their left arm and their right arm free to grab the food off the table and dip it into the bowl of bread, and then they would take it and eat it. That's being described here by Jesus. He says, he who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Terrible thing that Judas has done. Then Judas, verse 25, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You've said it. Yes, Judas, you're the one. Perhaps he said it quietly. The others did not hear. That's most likely because we're told in the other Gospels that he told Judas, Judas, what you're about to do, go do it quickly. And that's John who describes that particular scene who says, and everybody thought he was going out to do something, buy something, or pay, do something like an offering for the poor. And that is what they all thought. But Jesus knew precisely what was about to be done. Is it I? You ever ask that question? You ever think about whether you might be the one who put him to death? You might be the one who was responsible for his being hung on a cross? I remember Chuck Smith once was in a conference. And that was a question that was being asked among all the scholars who were present. Who was responsible to put Jesus on the cross? Some stood up and said, it was the Romans who were responsible for his death. Others stood up and said, it was the Jews who were responsible for his death. Others said, it was just Judas who was responsible for his death. Chuck Smith got up and said, it was me. It was me. It was you. The Pharisees, described in this passage, were evil men who wanted to have him die. And that was what they had expected. But not during the feast. Mary was a wonderful servant of God who did not want him to die, who wanted him to be with them and help them and, and be present with them for as long as he would be able to stay. But recognizing the fact that he had spoke, the fact that he had spoken about his death, was willing to give it all up so that he could have an anointing for his burial. Judas, yes, indeed, he is responsible for the betrayal of our Lord and Savior. And it is, according to Jesus, true that Jesus' words spoken with regard to Judas Iscariot that he would have been better off not ever having been born. His disciples asked the question, is it I? Because they didn't know. They weren't sure. Could I be that mean, that evil, to betray my Lord? Peter had said, it's you who has the words of life. We can't leave you because you are the teacher that we believe is now to be recognized as the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How could Peter ever possibly be the one who would say, I'm going to go get three pieces of silver and have him crucified? But remember, Peter, 
We'll read it in the next time that we're together, the Lord willing. Peter would stand out and speak up for himself in the presence of all the other disciples when Jesus had said that truth about his betrayal and that they would go their separate ways once the betrayal had taken place. Peter said, Though others leave you, I will never leave you. I'll be there to protect you, Lord. I will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus said, Peter, this night before the cock crows three times, you will betray me. Deny me. Not betray, but deny me. Peter denied Jesus, just exactly as Jesus had said. What makes it different for Peter is that he repented of that which he had said. He went away weeping bitterly. Judas will go back to the priests recognizing that he indeed should not have done what he did. And we'll see what the result of his having made that choice will end up costing his life. Not only physical, but eternal. Life and death. Jesus died for you. Died for me. Died for all the world. We have to make a decision. We are like Mary, who desires to give everything up to worship Him, to honor Him. Or we can be like Judas, giving up on what we thought things should have worked out the way they did not work out. And because of that, there's no use to follow Him any longer. He's not worthy of my adoration and praise. We could be like the Pharisees, never believing, never accepting. We can be like the disciples, unaware of our unbelief, but yet, He's willing to let us in because our unbelief has turned to love for Him. And in the end, that's exactly what happened with Peter. Though he denied Jesus, he came to the right place. Jesus knew that as well because Jesus told Peter, yes, you're going to deny me. But when you have recovered from this, you are going to be used by God to help the others. So don't think for a moment that any one of us is beyond the scope of salvation's availability to us. 
If you're here today and you think that you've done some heinous thing, that you've done something that you should have never done, and because of that you're finding yourself feeling as though you've been separated from God's will and purpose in your life, and you're relenting, you're regretting every moment that you live, you're guilty, and you don't see a way out. While you have breath, there's always a way out. And it's simple. Confess your sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. You are His if you have received Him as your Savior. And if you have done so, then you should know that any sin that you might commit can be forgiven. But you've got to turn from that sin. You've got to change your ways. You've got to understand that He does not want you living in sin. He wants you to be set free from the bondage of sin. May it be so for all of us here today. And when we come to that conclusion, it's like Mary pouring that ointment on His head. Surrender all to Him.